0: From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Aside from skin cancers, colorectal cancer is the third most common cancer diagnosed in both men and women in the United States. Here to talk with me about colorectal cancer is Dr. Christina Go. She's an assistant professor of surgery at Upstate and she specializes in surgical oncology and colorectal cancer surgery. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Go.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: So, if I understand correctly, colorectal cancer affects men and women almost equally, and it's one of those cancers that has a better chance for successful treatment if it's caught early. Is that right?
1: That's correct. Um, Whenever you talk about cancer, when I talk to uh, about cancer with my patients, part of what I talk about is something called the stage of a cancer. So that sort of breaks down into how big a tumor is, if it spreads the lymph nodes or to other different parts of the body distantly from the colon. So when colon cancer or rectal cancer is caught at an earlier stage, patients have a better chance of getting treatment and surviving for a much longer time. How are most colorectal cancers discovered? That's very interesting and a great question to ask. Patients often come in with either no symptoms at all, which make up about a third of uh, patients who are diagnosed with colorectal cancer, or sometimes really vague and nonspecific symptoms like abdominal pain, um, changes in their bowel habits, or blood in their stool.
0: Well, I think I've seen screening recommendations for colon cancer starting at age 50 Um, is that the case for everyone or do some people need earlier screening
1: in terms of screening guidelines for somebody who we would call an average risk patient? Um, most of the guidelines are still saying age 50 to start screening for colon cancers or rectal cancers. Um, but I would say at the same time, there is a shift um, where I see these screening guidelines are are sort of changing to starting screening at around 45 years or older. That's both from the Colorectal Surgical Society guidelines, as well as the US the United States uh, Task Preventative Task Force guidelines. Now, the other part of that question that you asked is whether or not some patients should be screened at an earlier age. So that kind of gets into um, a couple more sophisticated portions of uh, the answer. So if you have a family history of uh, colon or rectal cancer, particularly in first degree relatives, so that means your mom, dad, brothers, sisters, or children, then it's recommended that you either start screening 10 years before the age of that relative's diagnosis or at, the age, at age 40, so whichever one comes first. So, for example, if you had a loved one who was diagnosed with uh, colorectal cancer at age 45, that means you should start screening at age 35. Sometimes in patient families that have known genetic predispositions to colorectal cancer, sort of like a lot of polyps or an associated uh, family history of colorectal cancer at an early age, along with other types of cancers, those patients will actually start getting their screenings done either in their mid-teens to their mid-twenties. And
0: does, when we say screening, are we talking about colonoscopy?
1: So for the most part, I am talking about colonoscopy, um, particularly in those high-risk groups that uh, we just discussed but there are also other ways that colon cancer or colorectal cancer can be screened, um, not just colonoscopy. So sort of under the umbrella of endoscopies or basically using a scope, uh, patients can also get what I sort of call a mini colonoscopy or flexible sigmoidoscopy, where it only looks at the very last portion of your large intestine. that's one way that a person can get screened, colonoscopy or flexible sigmoidoscopy. Um, The other way to uh, achieve colorectal cancer screening is really through stool studies. And that can be everything from just checking for blood in one stool versus another type of test where they actually look at look for specific DNA that's associated with um, different types of colorectal cancers or, or polyps.
0: Well, in terms of effectiveness, which is better at finding cancer, the the colonoscopy or the flexible sigmoidoscopy where you actually visualize inside the intestines or the these fecal blood tests? Are, are they equally effective?
1: So in terms of finding cancers, I would say that colonoscopy is still the, the superior test for a couple of reasons. Number one, yes, they can find a colon or a rectal cancer, but more importantly, they can also find polyps. Basically, polyps can just be abnormal growths in the colon that don't necessarily represent cancer itself, but can represent a precancer. Um, why I say that's important is not only can you find these polyps, but with colonoscopy, you can also remove them during that colonoscopy. So not only is it a diagnostic test, but it can also be a, a test that allows you to treat something.
0: This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with colorectal surgeon Dr. Christina Goh from Upstate Medical University. I want to ask you about the symptoms of colorectal cancer. Um, and I think you used the term, uh, you know, change in bowel habit, but, but what is that? What are we talking about with that?
1: I would say that it can really encompass a broad spectrum of symptoms. So often whenever we're talking about a quote-unquote change in bowel habits, that could be new-onset constipation. Um, it could be new-onset diarrhea or you can just see a change in sort of the caliber of your stool. Um, so not to get too graphic, but if your stool is usually you know, the, the width of a quarter or a 50 cent piece, all of a sudden it's the, the caliber of linguine or a pencil and it's consistently that way, that can sometimes be concerning for a colon or a rectal cancer.
0: Now, regarding blood, if someone notices blood on toilet tissue, what else are you likely to ask them about?
1: It kind of goes back to the symptoms of colon cancer itself in the sense that a lot of these symptoms that we tell patients uh, patients about are very nonspecific. So with blood on the toilet tissue, the other things that I'm thinking, in addition to potentially a patient having colon or rectal cancer, can be something um, going on sort of in the anorectal area, as an example, hemorrhoids, or a split in the, the skin around the anus due to constipation, that's called an anal fissure, or it can be uh, an outpouching in the colon that can cause some bleeding that has nothing to do with cancer called diverticulosis. Um, so a lot of the questions that I'll ask patients are, um, is there pain whenever you are having passing a bowel movement that's associated with it? Um, you know, how much blood is, is on the toilet paper or in the toilet bowl? Are you passing any clots? Um, and, and that ne- doesn't necessarily let me know that somebody has cancer, but does give me a better idea of how what's going on in the patient overall.
0: Now, if someone is suspected to have colorectal cancer, is their primary care provider likely to refer them to an oncologist or a surgeon or both?
1: So a lot of the referral pattern that it happens after a patient is diagnosed with colon cancer um, on colonoscopy, uh, you can't really diagnose it without um, getting a biopsy or basically a sample of tissue to say you have cancer. Um, that usually that referral comes to a surgeon, either through the primary care sort of overseeing things, but more commonly from the provider who has just completed the colonoscopy and uh, found those, uh, basically diagnosed it through biopsy. So that could be um, a gastroenterologist often um, who will refer that patient uh, generally first to a surgeon, unless, there are more concerning things going on um, that would make them concerned that that colon cancer has gone to other parts of the body, um, or if it's rectal cancer. So if it's rectal cancer, um, then often that patient will be referred both to a surgeon um, for surgical treatment of the cancer, as well as a medical oncologist and a radiation oncologist. Those types of doctors treat cancer through medicine such as chemotherapy um, for the medical oncologist and also with radiation for the radiation oncologist. Now, now
0: what is the difference between colon cancer and rectal cancer?
1: So, the first part in terms of differences really have to do with anatomy. So, your colon is about five to six feet uh, in length. Um, But whenever you talk about one's large intestine, that's both the colon and the very last part of the large intestine is called the rectum, which is mainly within one's pelvis. The reason that that distinction is important, not just to say that there are two different parts of anatomy, is that colon cancer and rectal cancer in terms of sequences of treatment are very different or can be very different.
0: So it it depends on where it arises along, because they're part of the same tract. So it depends on where along the tract I see. So if you locate, if you find cancer in the colon, are cancer cells likely to be all throughout the rest of the intestine?
1: That's also another reason why I advocate so strongly for colonoscopies. Because when a person is diagnosed with either colon or rectal cancer, there's everywhere from about a two to 12% chance that there is another polyp or cancer in the rest of the uh, large intestine. I say two to 12, because it really depends on which studies you look at to see um, how often a patient has what we call synchronous um, primary tumors. So is there
0: a spot that cancers typically arise in the colon? Is there one area that you're likely to find it more than others?
1: It depends on which study you look at, whether in particular colon cancers arise more frequently in the right side versus the left. Um, I think what's more provocative is that we're seeing an increase in left-sided or basically more downstream cancers, particularly in younger patients.
0: Interesting. Well, once you know that cancer is, is confirmed or diagnosed, how do you determine what stage it is and, and whether it is spread? So
1: we do a couple of additional tests to uh, completes what we call clinical staging of a cancer. So for colon cancer, um, for both colon and rectal cancer, I talked about size of tumor as part of how we stage a patient. But more accurately, when I'm talking about that T portion or tumor portion of staging, what I'm really looking at is how deeply within the different layers of the large intestinal wall um, has a tumor spread. Now that's more easily seen in rectal cancers, either through ultrasound or MRI. Um, And so for staging of rectal cancer in particular, we look at, uh, we can actually determine the tumor size based on both a pelvic MRI or an ultrasound. we look for whether or not it's gone to distant portions of the body um, through a CAT scan or something called a PET scan of the chest, abdomen, and the pelvis. And then additionally, we do some lab work, including a tumor marker called CEA um, to really give us an idea um, of whether or not the tumor is spread. Um, CEA, that lab value, is not very specific. So even if it's low, um, it doesn't necessarily mean you don't have cancer. Uh, we use that CEA uh, number after a person has been treated for cancer as a tracking to see whether or not the cancer has come back.
0: Well, if I understand correctly, the tumors can be made up of different types of cancers. Which one are most which ones are the most common?
1: So, yes, colorectal cancer can be from different types of cells, um, but about 95% of them come from the glands and are called adenocarcinomas. So, that's the most common type of colorectal cancer a patient can be diagnosed with.
0: We have to take a short break, but HealthLink on Air will be right back with more information about treatment for colorectal cancer. You're back with Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Christina Goh from Upstate Medical University about colorectal cancer. We've talked about symptoms and how this is diagnosed. Now let's talk about risk factors. What increases a person's risk of developing colorectal cancer?
1: So, I think the most common risk and one that we really can't control is someone's age. Um, Really patients are more likely to uh, be diagnosed with colorectal cancer after age 50. Um, The average age of diagnosis for colorectal cancer is about 72 years old. Um, Other things that we touched upon include a family history of colorectal cancer. So again, um, your first degree relatives uh, particularly, um, patients uh, who have relatives who were diagnosed at an earlier age have a, a higher risk of colorectal cancer than having first-degree relatives that were diagnosed at a later age. Um, even having polyps, sort of those those non not quite cancer, but could be precancerous growths um, that can arise in the colon, can predispose someone to um, getting colon cancer and then we also talked about sort of some genetic predispositions um, where there are certain uh, genetic factors that predispose um, patients and their families to getting cancer at an earlier age and multiple types of cancers not just in the colon or the rectum.
0: Since this is a cancer
1: in our digestive tract does our diet Mm -hmm.
0: influence our risk?
1: Yes, so that while there are things that we can't control, sort of like one's age, one's family history, et cetera, um, sort of diets can also um, be a risk factor. Diets high in fat, particularly animal fat, and low in calcium, folates, and fiber, um, really are suggested those sort of diets um, have been suggested to increase your risk of developing colorectal cancer on the other hand patients who are, are eating high amounts of fiber and fruits and vegetables seem to have a lower risk of colorectal cancer I would say however that these diet uh, these studies are pretty imperfect um, in that the idea that sort of an association, doesn't necessarily mean that one's diet is the cause of of one's cancer.
0: Well, let's talk about in terms of treatment. Is surgery usually part of the plan?
1: Yes. So, surgery is is the plan with both colon and rectal cancer in terms of um, trying to cure a patient of cancer. Um, And again, sort of with there there are some differences in terms of the sequence of events, particularly with rectal cancer, um, where if patients have a tumor that is more locally advanced, so sort of going more deeply into the different layers of the rectum, or if there are lymph nodes that look suspicious on a uh, rectal cancer patient's MRI, then that patient is likely to start with chemotherapy and radiation before getting surgery.
0: Now, are you seeing more patients that are being uh, treated with immunotherapy?
1: So, in terms of immunotherapy, I would say I haven't seen an increase in the trend. Uh, immunotherapy itself um, is still being used in patients who have stage 4 or metastatic cancer, but isn't necessarily a part of standard treatment for cancers that are earlier stages than that.
0: Well, let's talk about how the surgery is usually done. I I imagine that the location of the cancer might determine how you operate, but can you talk me through it?
1: Well, so I think um, in terms of the location, um, it, it just really lets me know what part of the colon and what part of the associated blood supply of the colon and lymph nodes I'm going to take, but either right-sided or left-sided colon cancers or rectal cancers can be uh, operated upon surgically through minimally invasive techniques. So when I talk about minimally invasive techniques that can be laparoscopic surgery, so those would be smaller incisions and the, and skinny long instruments in order to take out the portion of the colon that is uh, of concern um, or rectum, or we can also be using robotic surgery. And me and my partners do use robotic and laparoscopic techniques um, to help treat our colorectal cancer patients.
0: Are you able to predict ahead of time whether an ostomy is going to be required?
1: For the most part, yes. Um, I would say that particularly for colon cancers, I counsel patients that while an ostomy is possible, um, most of the time my plan is to put them back together without an ostomy. It's a little bit trickier with rectal cancer. Um, We had talked about how often patients with rectal cancer have to receive chemotherapy or radiation before their surgery. Um, In addition to that, um, the rectum is in a more contained portion of the body. It's encased by the bony portions of your pelvis. So that makes it a more challenging technical uh, surgery to do. Um, Sort of multiple factors in terms of rectal cancer would make me counsel a patient that they might have a temporary ostomy or depending on how low that rectal cancer is, they might need a permanent ostomy.
0: And how do you describe an ostomy to your patients?
1: Well, what I tell them is that it's essentially um, a loop of your intestines that that comes through your abdominal wall and is attached to a bag to collect stool. So instead of passing stool through your bottom um, as they might already be um, as they are doing but um, when they come to see me, they'll be emptying a bag um, of their own stool everywhere from two to six times a day.
0: This is your host, Amber Smith for Upstate's Healthlink on Air, and I'm speaking with Dr. Christina Goh. She's a colorectal surgeon from Upstate Medical University. Well, in terms of uh, making preparations for surgery, what do you tell patients to expect uh, in terms of the length of time that it will take and what they're going to feel like when they wake up?
1: When I counsel a patient about what to expect for surgery, we actually go through a lot of education. Um, If they need an ostomy, not only will I talk to them about an ostomy, um, we have great wound care and ostomy nurses that will also counsel them about that. But in addition to that, I talked to them about something called an enhanced recovery system uh, program that we have. And what that means is we add small steps here and there so that they can recover pretty quickly from surgery. Surgery itself can take anywhere from uh, two to six hours depending on the type of surgery done and, and sort of different patient factors going into it, but when they wake up from surgery, my hope is that they can actually start sipping on clear liquids um, once they're more uh, awake enough to do. So um, if it's possible, and they had a very early case. Um, I, I hope that they can start walking um, the day of their surgery uh, and often I, I tell them that they should expect the hospital stay everywhere from about 2 to 5 days.
0: And then once they get home, um, how long until they're back to, like, their regular activities?
1: So I think that depends on the patient uh, himself or herself. Um, In terms of activities they can do once they get home, um, the only thing that I really ask that they uh, abstain from is, is heavy lifting or sort of core work to prevent them from developing a hernia where their incision is. Um, but in terms of light activity, light duties such as walking or, or light housework, they can do that as soon as they feel comfortable. Overall, I do tell patients that they might feel like they can do all of these things again, but really, fatigue is the symptom that sort of stays with them for the longest after their surgery. And so they'll notice that they get tired more quickly after doing, say, a, a, a chore that wouldn't um, make them tired before. Um, and that recovery period can take anywhere from four to six weeks for, for most patients.
0: Let's talk about the risks of this surgery. What are the things that patients need to be aware of, you know, before they agree to this type of surgery?
1: Every surgery, regardless of whether it's acting on the colon or, you know, taking something off of uh, a skin lesion, for example, has a risk of bleeding and infection. Um, But particular to colorectal surgery, um, the other things that I also worry about, in addition to bleeding and infection, uh, include something called an anastomotic leak. So if a patient um, has a portion of their colon or rectum, um taken out, and the colon and rectum are basically a pipe, I put those uh, those two ends that are left in the body back together. And the medical term for that reconnection is, is an anastomosis. So anastomotic leaks are are probably the the complication that i I worry about the most after this type of surgery. And the risks of that really depends on whether it's on the upstream or the right side part of your colon or the downstream or left side part of your colon and rectum. So that can range everywhere from about three to 5% of the time. Um, when a leak occurs, what I tell patients what before surgery in terms of risks of leaks is treatment for that leak can be everything from antibiotics and placement of the drain to redoing the reconnection and potentially placing a temporary ostomy um, to save their life.
0: What are the chances that uh, colorectal cancer will return in someone who's already had it and been treated for it? Is that a a real concern?
1: Yes. And so usually if that's going to happen, um, it again depends on staging Um, So, we talked a little bit about clinical staging or basically the way that we do the different imaging and blood work tests before surgery to get an idea of how extensive the cancer is, but um, we also talk about pathologic staging. And that's really after you've done the surgery and have taken out the cancer, how many lymph nodes are are truly involved, how deep is the tumor um, whenever one looks under the microscope. Um, So the reason uh, that we do that is to decide whether or not a patient would need chemotherapy afterwards, et cetera, but also it does give us a good idea of how likely the cancer is going to come back um, part of what we do to see whether the cancer comes back is called surveillance um, and. If that, that occurs for, for about 5 years after a patient has completed treatment of their cancer, um, and it's been shown that the risk of cancers coming back sort of the highest risk occurs in the 1st, 2 years, but can um, the risk goes down after about five years. It's never quite zero, um, but but it does go back down to the general population um, risk after if, if you're five years without any um, evidence of the cancer coming back.
0: Let me ask you before we have to wrap up, what areas of research in colorectal cancer do
1: you think hold the most
0: promise? Mm, that's,
1: a, that's a good question. I think, um, Part of it is is trying to figure out um, why we see younger patients um, getting uh, colorectal cancer um, more. You know, it seems like that that patient population, the younger pa- uh, population, um, the incidence of colorectal cancer is going up. Um, I said that immunotherapy is is really sort of. Used sort of for stage four cancers, but um, you know a lot can be a lot of research is done to see whether or not that can be better tailored um, to non-stage four cancers. Uh, and I, there's a lot of research in rectal cancer to see what how radiation and chemotherapy can better treat these cancers before going to surgery. Um, all of these things are you know in different uh, stages of development and can really give us a better insight into um, a disease process that affects so many people. This
0: has been very informative. Thank you so much to Dr. Christina Goh. She's an assistant professor of surgery at Upstate who specializes in surgical oncology and colorectal cancer surgery. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and radio talk show, HealthLink on Air.